When I was here last, uh, we were talking about the moving forward of uh, the sequence events of events related to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, we talked about, I talked about Jesus as risen. You know, we went through his death, Passover. We spoke of him rising again during the days of unleavened bread. And today I would like to follow up on that somewhat by taking a look at Jesus Christ and what he's doing now as a risen Lord and Savior. And I'd like to look at that in the context of the seven churches of Revelation. The seven churches of Revelation. So Revelation chapters two and three contain messages that are written for and then sent to the seven churches, which are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now each of these congregations receives its own short, personalized message from the head of the church, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Each message follows a pattern. It notes their accomplishments, you know, good stuff they've done. It notes the faults and shortcomings, their trials. And they're also reminded of the glorious outcome for those who overcome and persevere. And at the start of each message, he mentions one or two things about himself, which relate to his role as the head of the church. And this serves to remind them and remind us that what the messenger brings to them is actually from him. Now, most of the attributes of Christ are mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, which comes before any of the letters begin. Uh, I'm just going to read that to you, because in this uh, introduction, if you will, some of these attributes are elaborated on in a way that we'll refer back to. So Revelation Chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, tell us this. Uh, This is John writing here, and he says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, and the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword." His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's death in the grave. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lamps is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Today I want to look at the attributes of the risen Christ that we find at the beginning of each of these letters and consider how they relate to his present role as the living head of the church who is actively at work within his church. So what do these seven churches represent? Let's take a look at the next slide, please. What do these seven churches represent? Well, on a superficial level, which is actually relevant, uh, each of these churches was a real congregation of God's people in Asia Minor. You saw the map up just before. And these were, you know, province, it was a province of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire. Yet the presentation of the churches has uh, an obvious and clear symbolic or, you know, 
typological meaning as well. Now, uh, some make a very good case that the 2,000-year history of the Church of God can be roughly divided into seven eras with unique characteristics that correlate to history. That's one, one way of looking at it. Some view the seven churches as representing seven um, types of attitudes or seven types of challenges faced by God's church on and off over the past two millennium. I am not going to try to make a case for any of these views as the best way to understand these messages. Today we're going to limit ourselves to the statements that Christ makes about himself as the head of the church and at the beginning of each message. Next slide. So Revelation 2 verse 1 says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Well, these are the seven angels, which we read earlier. And the uh, literal meaning of the word angelos or agelos is messenger. That's what it means. It means messenger. So to the messenger, right, to the church, write this. Um, most of the time in scripture, angelos refers to supernatural beings like cherubim or seraphim. But angelos can also refer to human beings. Human beings sent on a mission by God. For example, John the Baptist was an angelos of God. When John the Baptist sent uh, people to inquire of Jesus, who are you? Are you the Messiah? The, the men that he sent were angelos, angels. Uh, when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples throughout the land to you know, announce that he was coming their way, they were angelos, angels. Each message to the seven churches begins with this command to the angel of the church to write something down and presumably to ensure that it gets delivered. Whether human or supernatural messengers, their role is to relay the messages to the church from Jesus Christ, who is the head. And it says that he holds these messengers within his right hand. And that's a phrase. Uh, it's not limited to the Bible, but we definitely see it in the Bible. A phrase indicating that they represent his authority within the church. If you say, uh, well, so-and-so is my right-hand man or my right-hand woman, that means that they are working under your authority. They represent you. They are, you know, kind of like an extension of, of, of you. You know, you might hear that in a business setting, my, my right-hand person. Then the Bible speaks of Christ as seated at the right hand of the Father with authority that is delegated to him from the Father. And so Christ delegates responsibilities to subordinates within his church and when dealing with his church. It also says, let's take the next, next slide. No, yeah, the next slide if you would. It also says that he walks among the seven lampstands. We read that earlier. And we read that in the introduction. And this, I believe, is an allusion back to the lamps that are within the tabernacle. Go with me to um, Exodus. Let me find my ribbon and put it in Revelation because I'm going to come back. There we go. Uh, go to Exodus 25, verse 31. Exodus 25, verse 31 says... Let's read 31 and 32. Make a lampstand of pure gold. So, golden lampstands. And hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms on, of one piece. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. So there's, there's three over here and there's three over here. And then there's one in the middle. Drop down to verse 37. Uh, it says, make its seven lamps. All right, that's the one in the middle added there. 
Make it seven lamps, three on one side, three on the other, one in the middle, and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. So the tabernacle and all its furnishings and all the stuff that was in this tent of meeting and later on in the temple was a representation of the throne room of God. Go to Hebrews 8, verse 5. Before, you, before we go there, there's one little verse I wanted to read, verse 40 here in Exodus 25. It says, uh, make it out of pure gold, and then in verse 40 it says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So Moses is working from a pattern. Now go to Hebrews 8, verse 5. Hebrews 8, verse 5, which says, uh, speaking of the old priesthood says they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. So the seven lamps are the seven churches, right? We read that there in Revelation. And if you put it together with what's going on in the tabernacle, the seven lamps are before the throne of God. He has his eyes on the church. They are before him. Now, the seven lamps in Revelation are a little different, a little unique. They're separate. They're mentioned as seven lamps, whereas in the old tabernacle setup, it was all one lamp with seven arms on it. Um, I think there's an analogy there. I don't want to make too much out of it. But, you know, within Israel, the assembly of God was contained within one nation. You know, one nation, one lampstand, right? Seven, seven lamps on it. The New Testament church of God is composed of many nations and many peoples made up and brought together by his Holy Spirit. And Christ, he's the high priest. He is the high priest. And, you know, we've gone through that at various times in the past. I think we even mentioned it uh, in the past month or so. And as the high priest, Christ is like the high priest who was there in the tabernacle or in the temple, moving around among the, you know, the things that are in the tabernacle, the things that are before God. And he is walking among the lamps like the high priest who ministered before God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And when we think of Christ, I think it is very important that he is, is not thought of as a dead savior hanging on a cross or a stake or staros. He's not to be remembered as a dead savior. He should be thought of as raised, raised from the dead and actively at work as our high priest, actively at work within the church and for the sake of the church. Not dead, not in the rearview mirror, but something that's happening right now because he is alive. Now, yes, the atonement for sin was made, and that is something that is in the past. It was done once for all. But the work of preparing a people continues, and it goes on, and it's active now. Go, we're in Hebrews, uh, go to chapter 2, verse 17. It says, for this reason, he, that being Jesus Christ, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Notice that you know, he's actively at work. He's not a memory. Go to chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Once again, he is to be thought of as active and involved within the church and within the lives of those who are in the church. Go to chapter 7, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests, that's the old Levitical priesthood, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, and therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. That is his present purpose. And he is actively at work doing that, interceding for you. One more on that. Romans 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? Who condemns the church? No one. Christ Jesus who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He is active, he is alive, and he is at work on your behalf. And when you get in trouble, he is there for you. 1 John 2, verse 1. We've hit this a few times in the past uh, year. 1 John 2, verse 1. Because stuff happens, you know, life goes on, overcoming sin continues. Um, and John's talking about ongoing sin and how we deal with it. And in First John, uh, John 2, verse 1, he says this, My dear children, so to the church, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for sin, and not only for yours, but for the sins of the whole world. Next slide. Revelation, go back to Revelation, chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write this, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and who came to life. In Revelation uh, Chapter 1, I mentioned earlier that we you know, kind of go through all these attributes. And if you look at verse 8, you'll see that this concept is, is dealt with as well, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And I like that phrasing there because in, in you know, my way of reading it, it tells me that the head of the church is beyond time. He is beyond time. For us, you and me, the future is unknown. You, you don't know what the future holds. And you're actually warned in scripture not to think you do. You don't know what the future holds. And for us, the past is largely forgotten. It's hard to remember stuff that happened 20 years ago. It's a good thing for pictures. <laughs> Other than that, I would have forgotten a lot more. And even, even the present is murky and hard to fully understand what's really going on. But the living Christ can see the past, knows the future, which allows him to completely understand the present moment which helps him as he intercedes for us. Go to Isaiah 41, verse 4. It has always been thus. Isaiah 41, verse 4, speaking of himself, he says, who has done this and carried it through? Who can do things and make them happen? Who can say something's going to happen and then make it happen? Who calls forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first of them and the last, I am he. Who can say something's going to happen and then make it happen? Romans 8, verse 27. 
He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So this intercession that he's all about is for our good. And it also serves to give meaning and purpose to suffering when bad things happen in our lives. They make sense through the understanding that we have from God's spirit. These are very important ways that Christ is active and helping right now within the church for you and for me. Go to Genesis 50, verse 20. This is uh, Joseph, and I'm going to hope and assume that you know the story of Joseph, who went through a lot of bad stuff. Terrible things happened, and then they kind of, it all turned out right in the end, right? Like a fairy tale. Well, at the end of his life, you know, the, the tables had turned, and, you know, things looked very different. He says this about his own life. Um, or my verse 20, saying to his brothers, the ones who'd sold him into slavery, and so he you know, went through all this terrible stuff. He says, you intended to harm me. You did this out of bad motives, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph, he could see this in hindsight. He could see that you know, this was for a purpose, God knew it all along and was working towards that end. It says also in Revelation 2 verse 8 that he died and he came to life again. And that's something that we've talked about quite a bit over the past few weeks. He came in the flesh, he died in the flesh and was raised to life. And he did this to show what is possible for, for human beings, for you, for me. And therefore we can have confidence and should have confidence in God's desire and power to raise us from the dead. As it says, to free those whom all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. When you read the message to the church there in Smyrna, you can't help but notice that uh, they were suffering. They were facing persecution unto death. And the attributes of Christ that are mentioned at the head of this letter give them meaning and purpose to the suffering that they're going through and encouragement to perseverance. He's the first and the last and raised from the dead. Let's go to the next slide. Revelation 12, oh, sorry, 2, verse 12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, this sharp, two-edged sword is the Bible. So be careful. Don't cut yourself. You've got one right in front of you. It's the Bible. And as the head of the church, he has given us the written word, which is an objective guide for governance and spiritual growth. And I say objective guide because it's not the product of our own wishes, our own imagination. It's real and it's the same for every man, woman, and child alive. The truth is the truth. And you have it. And Christ works within his church through his word. Notice if you go through the letter to the church there in Pergamos, their struggle, their, what they were working on, what they were trying to overcome was false teaching. That was their big trial, false teaching. And the doctrinal problems 
it doesn't really give you a laundry list, but it says that it was the doctrine of uh, Balaam or the Nicolaitans, you know, two different kinds of uh, false teaching. Um, they're different, but they both lead to the same conclusion, which is disobedience to God. One of the chief functions of the Bible is to motivate and to direct us into obedience. And that's how we deal with false teaching. Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 11. You might have heard messages about what, what is the doctrine of Balaam, what are the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, and uh, there's a fair bit of guesswork involved in that, good guesswork, but the outcome is the same. They both lead to disobedience, whether it's asceticism or whether it's, you know, Gnosticism, they lead to the same place. Hebrews 4, verse 11 through 13 says this. Notice this is, this is before what we read earlier about Jesus, the great high priest. It says, um, uh, if you go back to verse 11 here, it's talking about Israel's disobedience towards God and unwillingness to keep the Sabbath day. It says, therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is active and alive and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Next slide. When the Bible speaks, and it speaks a lot about God's grace and God's patience, and they're, they're good things, and you and I are alive and have hope because of them, but when the Bible speaks of grace, the grace of God and the patience of God, it's not so that we feel better about ourselves. That's not its purpose. That's not its goal. It may, you, know, you may feel better about yourself, but that's not its purpose. It's so that you and I have time and opportunity to repent. That's why God is patient. That's why God is gracious, so that you might repent. And the sharp two-edged sword is shared with you and you have one there in your lap so that we might, you might, judge yourself now and overcome so that you need not be judged later by Christ and punished. And if we don't do it, we don't actively judge ourselves using the sharp two-edged sword, he will. If you're in Revelation 2, read verse 16, he says, uh, repent therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If you don't do it, I will. And that's not a, not a good equation. You know, I think throughout God's word, he says, better that you take care of it now but if you won't, I will. And, you know, when you get it back into the book of Hebrews, it says it's a, it's a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he gives you the opportunity to judge yourself now. Next slide. And that, that sword, you know, the, the double-edged sword, you know, if you go to the end time scenarios of like Second Thessalonians or Revelation 19, that's the same sword that he uses to judge the nations when he returns. But you have it now to judge yourself. It says in Revelation 2 verse 18 that he has eyes like fire and feet like brass. Um, where are we? Yeah. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, when we read this letter, if you take the time to read it on your own, notice that the Thyatiran church is warned about judgment, punishment, 
right? Punishment of death or reward for acts. That's part of the letter to this, this church. Let's take a look at the next slide. Now Jesus is alive, he is our high priest, and he is active and engaged in interceding for us. With this, when he has special insight into the human condition. And he has shared our weaknesses and our temptation and suffering. However, it is equally important to realize that having gone through the human experience, he is also well-equipped and very knowledgeable of what we are capable of. He knows what we can do. Not only in all the weaknesses and downside of being in the flesh, he knows what we're capable of, specifically in regard to overcoming and enduring and repenting. He knows what we're capable of. If you're in uh, Revelation still, go to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Um, Regard to judgment, he says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Hmm. Again, if you don't do it, I will. The imagery here is eyes like flaming fire and feet like white hot metal. That says brass, but that's not a very good translation in my opinion. You know, you go back to Revelation 1, it says, brass burning in a fire or burning in the furnace. It's white hot metal. That's, that's what the word really means. White hot metal, which I believe are descriptions of Jesus' glorified state. And white hot fire, at least in my imagination, is like the energy of everlasting life emanating from God. But fire also signifies the potential for permanent destruction that judgment and condemnation can lead to. So it's, it is, like, once again, a double-edged sword. And at present, the risen Christ is actively engaged as judge over the church of God. And when Christ returns, he will assume the role of judge over all nations and inhabitants of the earth. And he is judge. And at present, his eyes are not on the world. You know, he has not come as king of kings. Not yet. Right now, his eyes and his active energy is upon the church of God. Searching the mind and the heart and preparing a reward for each of us that's appropriate to how we've worked with the instruction and the testing and the opportunities and trials that are presented to us. Take a look at verse 26 there in chapter 2. He says, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Wow. That reward that we speak of, that Jesus speaks of, should be considered primarily in terms of responsibilities granted when we are seated alongside Christ, when he comes to administer the rule of God on earth. Next slide, Revelation 3, verse one. The seven spirits and the seven stars. Seven spirits and the seven stars. Now, it says to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We've encountered the seven stars before. We already looked at those. And now we're introduced to these seven spirits. Hmm, spirits. What does this mean? We didn't read about that in Revelation 1. Are these seraphim, cherubim? Is that what they are? Well, okay, but if the messengers to the churches are seraphim and cherubim, then, then wouldn't, that would be redundant, right? So maybe there's something else. Let's take a look at Revelation 4, verse 5. It says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the th throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Okay, that's interesting. 
So these seven spirits are connected to the seven lamps, right? Seven lamps, which are the seven churches. Interesting, but once again, it's, it's kind of redundant. We've already, we've already talked about that. Go to Revelation 5, verse 6. It says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, here, the seven spirits are attributes of the Lamb of God. Also spoken of as seven eyes that go forth into the earth and report back to God. That's usually what the function of these eyes is. So I put it to you, next slide, that this is a process of information, right? Information goes out, instruction and exhortation goes out, and there's some intercession involved. And then there's feedback and results, intercession, an information loop from God and then back to God. Information, instruction goes out, feedback and results come in. What are these people doing with what I'm teaching them? Now, if you've ever been in, a, in an office environment, um, sometimes you know, people have to give a report, like a, a profit and loss report. And I know some people in, in the congregation are involved in stuff like that, some are not. But if you're, giving, if you're involved in a meeting where there's reports, say the vice president is reporting to the CEO, okay? Let's just suppose that. Well, a vice president doesn't just gather up all the information and then plunk it down in front of the CEO and say, here. The vice president comments on the information. That's expected. The information is presented. The vice president might say, okay, here's, here's the latest results, and I think what you're seeing here is, ex you know, and they'll explain what's going on. So there's some commentary. There, there's an evaluation. I put it to you, and you know, this is somewhat of my own speculation, so it is with Christ as the head of the church before the throne of the Father. As things go back and forth, he's interceding, making comments, talking about, well, this is, this is how this is probably going down, or this is what's happening. Next slide. So these seven spirits, again, a little speculative, but you know, they could be characteristics of Christ that guide how he judges and how he intercedes on our behalf. Uh, go to Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 4. Whether this is, is the exact meaning of the symbolism, I don't know, but I do believe that this is part of the actual process. I'm pretty convinced of that. It says in uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 4, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. This is Christ, this is Jesus Christ. From his roots a branch will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel, might, spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will judge by what he sees, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge. Judge the needy. And with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So whether we're being instructed or corrected, it is regulated by the righteous character of Christ. Next slide. Revelation 3, verse 7. So when he's at work for us, when he's interceding for us, it's his character. Everything he is is involved in the process. And his understanding, wisdom, counsel, righteousness, they're all involved. In Revelation 3, verse 7, it says to the church in Philadelphia, right, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. That Jesus... 
Christ is holy and true, I think are self-evident statements. But the reference to the key of David is kind of a riddle, a bit of a riddle to be solved. Go to Isaiah 22. Verse 22, Isaiah 22, 22. This is the uh, verse that's being referenced here. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And back in Revelation, I think I forgot to read that part um, when I said he holds the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. There's a reference to Isaiah 20, 22, 22, 22, 22. <laughs> All right, now this verse, uh, the key of David here, it's, it's an actual key, and that you can read through the whole prophecy here and see the context. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it a bit for you. There's an actual key that's kept by the steward of the king's palace. And in this prophecy that we read in Isaiah, the key is taken from this man Shebna and it's given to another man named Eliakim. That's the prophecy that, that you will read if you read the whole context. Now Shebna, he's proud and he's arrogant, whereas Eliakim, who the key is going to be given to, is reliable. And he's dedicated to the welfare of the subjects in the kingdom. Now in history, Shebna was a real person. Uh, he served the king Hezekiah, king of Judah. And Eliakim was also a real person. Um, but within the prophecy, Eliakim is understood by pretty much everybody as a foreshadow of the Messiah. Hence the tie-in. Now as, as keeper of the keys... Christ opens, shuts. He gives us, he gives you access to things you would otherwise not have access to. That's what keys do, right? You don't have the key, you can't get in. You don't have access. You have the key, you've got access. So this could be a lot of different things, and I think it is a lot of different things. This could be opportunities in life God makes available to you. Um, it could be knowledge or prophetic understanding. I think those are applicable. I don't think those are the only way it can be used. It could be access to the Father. We read about that a little earlier. We're able to boldly go before God's throne because of Jesus Christ's atoning work. We have access. He's given us access. It could be access to eternal life. He said, I hold the keys to life and death. And as head of the church, he controls the access to all these things. And they all pass through him. Take a look at the next slide. Now, within the courts of the Davidic kings, this key was also a visible sign of authority. We had the key that you were important. You had authority. As head of the church, the living Christ delegates authority and roles and responsibilities within his church. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 18 through 19. Speaking here to the disciples and in particular Peter, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the grave will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the church has been delegated a certain degree of authority from Jesus Christ. And some folks take this scripture and they go crazy with it and do all kinds of things that they shouldn't do. The church does not have the authority to change the laws of God. That is not an acceptable use of delegated authority from Jesus Christ. We do not have the authority to change the laws of God or times or seasons. But the 
we do have some authority to determine what I would call administrative uh, matters, uh, interpreting God's law in different settings. For example, tithing. How do you tithe in a in a you know a modern currency society? The church will talk about that and make administrative decisions on stuff like that. How are we going to keep the festivals? You know, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? These are administrative decisions that the church makes. But the primary application of this authority, which is delegated, is forgiveness and judging disputes between members. That's the primary application of it. Um, there are other administrative things I could mention, but uh, let's take a look at Matthew 18, verse 18. <clears throat> and you can, if you look at the larger section here, it's talking about how do you deal with disputes? How do you deal with disputes? And, you know, go to the person personally, but if it doesn't, doesn't work out, get the church involved, and there has to be some kind of a ruling. And, uh, you know, if they refuse, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, then you got to deal with them. Verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that key phrase about how you deal with this delegated authority, I think is primarily focused on forgiveness and judging disputes between members. Next slide. Revelation 3, verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation. As head of the church, you can trust Christ in all things. You can trust him. Hopefully, the attributes that we've already gone through shore up this uh, uh, assertion that I'm making. You can trust him in all things. He is faithful. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to God's word. He's trustworthy. You can trust him. He's true. He's the true witness. What he has told you is true. And the promises that you have heard from him through his church, promises that you hold on to are true. They are a sure thing. You can count on them. He's the true witness. And the all-powerful God of creation will not be diverted from his goal. You can trust him. He will not look the other way and let you wander off in the shopping mall. His goal is to bring many brothers and sisters into their full inheritance in the family of God. Go to Philippians 1 verse 6. Hold on to this. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, the day of resurrection. God is not starting a project and then going to let it fall. He will not let you fall. You can trust him. It also says he's the amen. Right? The amen. Now, amen is, we're all very familiar with it. We say it every time. Probably most of us say it every day. And we say it here at services. It's a way that we, as individuals, express uh, the sentiment, let it be so. That's the literal meaning of the word. Let it be. Let it be so. And we do this at the end of a prayer. Amen is also used by Jesus as the preface to a teaching. So when you read, truly, truly, I say to you, what he's saying is, amen, amen, I say to you. So it has a meaning of, you know, true things coming to pass. Now for human beings, it's an expression of our agreement 
with God and our submission to his will. Let it be so. Go to 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. Talking about the truth and the promises and the hope. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. He is the amen. He brings it to pass. If you read through the letter to the Laodicean church, their problem is that they're losing their way. They're losing their way. They're becoming overcome by the cares of the world, stuff like that. Now, Christ could, he could just say, well, you know what? They made their choice. They made their bed. I'm going to let them lie in it. He could let them just drift off into oblivion, you know, and really, you know, focus his attention on the people who are with the program, you know, people who are staying in the zone, right? I'm just going to focus on these people. Let the other one, right? But he doesn't want to. He does not want to. He doesn't want anyone to slip through his fingers. Anyone the Father has given him, he doesn't want to let them slip through his fingers. He's going to help them. How's he going to help Laodicea? Well, he intends to open their eyes through allowing them to enter into trial and tribulation. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 19. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. God disciplines the children that he loves. And he says, you know, if, uh, if you're not disciplined, you're like the child who is neglected. You're not cared for. You're not taken care of. The discipline of God is his love towards you. You know, with the Laodicean church, he didn't want to see them just drift off into oblivion. He was going to help them. And he was going to use discipline to do it. So, we've now taken a look at the letters to the seven churches, and in each letter, just drawn out the characteristics and attributes of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And I think it's always important for us to remember that Christ is alive, he has risen, and he is actively at work, presently at work within the church. And he's supreme in authority. He's actively interceding. He's instructing, cleansing from all impurity. He's judging in mercy and righteousness. And he's holding on to each and every one of us with power and with love. <laughs>